You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 119. Father, we do ask now as we turn our hearts and our minds, our eyes, Lord, to your wonderful word, that you would show us all the wonderful things contained within it, Lord, that you would help us to search them out, to understand them by your spirit, Lord, and to have a heart that would be willing to obey them. In Jesus' name, for his sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is, in my mind, the most beautiful psalm in the whole Psalter, I could argue that. It's an acrostic psalm, as as we looked at in the introduction, arranged around the 22 letters of the Aleph Bet, the Hebrew alphabet. And let's just be honest, it is insanely good. It's insanely important for the Christian church. If I had my way, I would actually make this required reading for every Christian once a month. That's how important I think it is, the lessons that we get from it. If you've ever been to my kitchen, you'll see that I have all 176 verses of this within my kitchen. So I I often just stand there in the kitchen reading little stanzas of this psalm. It's just a wonderful psalm. Why? Because I believe the topic is so foundational to the Christian faith. The topic is simply the word of God. And its message is equally simple. And it is, if I could summarize it, love the word of God. The word of God love the word of God. And that's really what we're going to be looking at as we continue to make our way through this psalm. So far, we've already seen many of the wonderful terms that are used to describe the Bible in this it's huge variation. And you have one of these terms in pretty much every verse. There's two or three verses where you don't have one of them. Most of them mention either the law. And just to remind you, law is not some onerous thing here. The, the original concept in, in this psalm is more the concept of instruction and teaching. Testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, and on and on this list goes. Everyone having a slightly different angle, slightly different way to look at the Word of God. It shows us just how rich, how wonderful the Word of God is. There's so many ways that we can look at it. And this, I would say, in itself is a lesson for us, lest we look at the Bible in a one-dimensional way. So let's start. We are on verse 57. This is the Hebrew letter Cheth. That's where you get the sound in Hebrew. But in the, in the English, you don't really um, appreciate the, the acrostic of this psalm. So we won't, we won't go into that. But let's look at verse 57. Let's read the whole stanza. So down to verse 64 together. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. You see what I mean about how rich this is? Like You just see how much this man loved the word of God as he writes... Now, he starts off by saying, the Lord is my portion. And if you could summarize this little stanza, I would summarize it. This is the wealth of life, our portion. What does that mean? That is really the chief object of our life. It's the thing that we concentrate our thoughts on. It's the thing that we bestow all our energy into. It's the thing that we lavish our affection on. It's that which colors us, molds us, motivates us, energizes us for life. That is what it means when it says, the Lord is my portion. No one should really need to tell us what a person's portion in life is. Their life should actually eloquently proclaim the fact 
of what it is they pursue in this world, whether it be the word of God, whether it be something else. That's a, a question we all need to ask ourselves. To this psalmist, his portion was God. God was everything. God was all in all. And I believe he's actually hinting back here to the, uh, the land allotment in uh, the Old Testament. Do you remember it says in Numbers 8.20, I'll read it to you. Numbers 18, verse 20. It says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. This is what he's getting at. Do you remember the, the tribes, they came into the promised land and they had the, the different sections of the land was allotted to different tribes, but not for the Levitical priests serving. They were not given any land because they were to be the people who were set apart for God. In fact, they would be the ones that would move about all of the land. They'd have little clusters everywhere because they were supposed to tell the word of God to the people. They were supposed to represent God. And this is a wonderful picture. We don't store up our own little things like if they had been given land, they would have farmed land. They would have done all these things, which was good for the rest of the nation, but not for those who were set apart for God. They had no portion. The Lord himself was their portion. And that's what I believe the psalmist is really getting at here. He's having that same attitude. The Lord is my portion. And this is the same for us. We are believers. We are also said to be priests, according to the New Testament, priests of the New Covenant. And because of that, we are not to tie ourselves to the things of the world. And now I understand we have a mandate, a dominion mandate, we could call it, where we have to work and till the ground and earn and do all the practical things that we do of life. But we have to be careful that we do not pursue them as the portion and the ultimate goal of everything we can and have in this life. Because like the psalmist, our portion is to be the Lord. He is our inheritance. We are his inheritance. And we've only scratched the surface of what that means, I believe, in our lives. We must pursue the Lord. We do not pursue our lot in this life. Do you remember when we studied Psalm 73? I'll read to you verses 25 and 26. We have a similar concept expressed here by that psalmist. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Desires nothing else on earth. To that point that his heart fails, he longs and desires for God. That is his portion forever. Now, you see what I mean? If I stopped right there, I believe that would give us enough to challenge us, to convict us, maybe to meditate on for many, many weeks. And I believe sometimes as we confront the word of God, it can be uncomfortable. Who, who experiences that? Hopefully it's not just me. When you're in the word of God, and often I'm up here teaching the word of God, you know, and I've done my labor in the text, I understand what it says, but you often get those moments where you're like, man, am I living that? Have I done that? And quite often you have to be honest and say, no, that's, that's not where I am. And then you spurs you on to pray, to follow, to live in obedience and to confess quite often. This is the Christian life, but we want to have this attitude. And this is why I would say every psalm, every verse in this psalm, you could have a, a week meditating on it. This is why I say this should be required reading for the entire church. Now, how do we make God our portion? Yes, we can say it in an abstract sense, but often people need more than just the, the abstract theology, if I could put it like that. We need practical guidance, what that means for our lives, how we accomplish that. If we, don't, if we know that's not our position, how do we get to that position? And the psalm, psalmist, the whole Psalter, in fact, is wonderful for practical examples. A lot of people love the application. The psalm gives us many clues. Just look at these verses. How do we make God our portion? Verse 58, we seek him, we seek his favor wholeheartedly. 
I sought your favour with all my heart. That's a positive action on our behalf. We positively go out and seek something. Verse 59, we follow his word. So we seek out his favour, we follow his word. Verse 60, what does it say? I hastened and did not delay. We don't delay in obedience to his word. And how often do we do this? I know this is true of my life. Like I said, sometimes when you're just in the text a lot, you're seeing things that you know you need to address in your own life, but you just find a way of putting it to one side. And this is what it's talking about here. We just drag our feet a little bit. We find some other reason. We busy our lives with something. I know how this goes. But it says here, part of making God our portion is that we do not delay obedience to his word. Because when we're in that place of delaying, that's often when the enemy will come. That's often when we'll get those temptations come across our path because we know we're not walking in full obedience and thus we are vulnerable. We don't have the armor of God when we're not using the sword of the Spirit if we're actually stepping back from full obedience in these areas. Verse 61, this is very important. We don't forget God's word. What does it say? The cords of the wicked encircled me. I have not forgotten your law. We don't forget God's word. How quickly we forget. That's one thing that I'm never surprised about myself, how quickly we forget lessons, how quickly we forget the times that God has moved in our lives, just like the Israelites. How quickly they forgot the lessons of Egypt when they came out of Egypt and longed for that safety that they thought they had in Egypt when they were in the wilderness. How quickly we forget. We must make a positive decision to not forget his word. Then verse 62, we thank God for his word. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Now, often we don't think of this. We, we, we often give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. We sing, we praise, and that's one absolutely wonderful. But here is a command to actually give thanks for his word. Because of what his word is, because it is righteous, it's holy, it's just, it's instruction, it's teaching, it's precepts, it's ordinances, it's all of these things that guide us in our Christian life, that light up this dark world, that we are supposed to live out as living doctrine, living epistles written not on tablets of stone, but by the Spirit of God. This is what it's getting at here. And because of that, our hearts should really just well up with praise, with thanksgiving to God. It's an overflow of our heart. We thank God for his word because he is our portion. His word is our portion. Verse 63, seek the right companions. This is very important. An underlooked area, I believe, of Christian discipleship. I am a companion of all those who fear you and those who keep your precepts. This is not saying that we don't have non-Christian friends, we don't go out into the world. Of, you know, there's just so many scriptures that tell us that's, that's one of our main duties in this world. But this is talking about intimate companionship in, in a different way. And often you'll know this when you're in a group of non-believers, if you're in a group of people that you struggle to be around, the difference when you're with a group of like-minded believers who are united and knit together by the Spirit of God, it's something quite different. It's something that's very hard to explain to people who are not believers, but it is encouraging, it's edifying, it's a good thing to have in your life. And this is one of the reasons why we have the church body. This is one of the reasons that God said, do not forsake the assembling together, because he knows that we all need this because we have different gifts that we bring, we keep each other accountable, we watch over each other, we pray for each other, we intercede for each other. Only the Spirit of God inspires that in people. That is why the church is so absolutely vital. And these are things I believe we need to really have at the forefront of our mind through everything that we've been through in the last two years and everything that we probably will go through as we go forward. 
the word of God, the church, the living body of Christ I'm referring to here, not the organisations, is absolutely essential for us because we are all members of one body. We come under one head and he's the king. You see, it's just non-negotiable. And verse 64, the last thing that makes God our portion. I love this one. Pray for God to teach you more of his word. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Yes, we come to church. We hear the pastors preach, and that's absolutely vital again for church life. The, the Spirit speaks to the church through the prophetic messages in, the, in these meetings. But the Lord wants you to search the word out on your own time too. You have your own responsibility to get into the word of God. And as you do this, pray, as the psalmist does here, teach me your word. Uh, a believer once told me, uh, I was a, actually one of the first Bible teachers I listened to, he said every time he comes to the word of God, he prays Psalm 190, uh, you know, open my eyes that I may see wonders in your word. You might notice I pray that in various different formats whenever I study the word of God. It's been just a continual habit that was put into me at a very young age in my Christian walk. I would recommend that it, you, know, you do that. It's biblical. This is what the psalmist does here. And he will, I believe, show you wonderful things in his word. So God is our portion. We seek his favor. We follow his word. We don't delay in obedience to his word. We don't forget his word. We thank God for his word. We seek to have the right companions who encourage us in his word. And we pray for God to teach us more of, him work, of his word himself. God is our portion and his word is our delight. And like I said, this is not a passive act. This is something that we must actually do. Often we sometimes get this idea that we're such a spiritual bunch, the Christian church, the New Testament speaks in spiritual language that there's no actual obedience that takes place because obedience is more reminiscent of the law. Just if you have that sort of mindset, that dichotomy that we've slipped into the church, get rid of it. It's not biblical. It's absolutely wrong. Obedience goes hand in hand with walking in the spirit. In fact, the two, are, again, are absolutely connected. We need to do some of these things. Look at the progression in this first stanza. What's the first thing it says? Verse 57, it says, I have promised. I have promised. This is a commitment. Reminds me of Daniel when he was taken captive in Babylon. And he says, I have purposed in my mind, or I've uh, purposed in my heart, made my mind up not to defile myself with the king's meats when he was to be told to eat all the pleasures of Babylon. He made a commitment, a promise, a vow, we might call that in ancient sort of language. Then it says, I sought with all my heart. So he promised and he sought. These are commitments that he had to make. It was a wholehearted devotion that he had to the Lord. And then look what comes after that, verse 59. Look at this. I considered my ways. He considered his ways. He made a promise. He sought the Lord. He had to consider his ways. Well, that's, that means stop and think. Stop and think. Where are your actions leading you? Are they leading you to follow the word of God? Are they leading you into a place that is dangerous and is causing you to disobey the word of God, just as Daniel had that decision to make in front of him? It says he considered his ways, and then what happened after that? He turned his feet to your testimonies. This is a very good explanation of what it means to repent. We're guessing that his desire to be in the word illuminated something for him in his life. He had to stop and consider his ways, and then the word of God caused him to turn his feet and start following the word of God again. Repentance, the, you know, the meaning of the word, teshuvah, just to turn around quite, liter quite literally what it means you turn your feet you start following the word of God you turn your feet but then after that look it says I hastened and I did not delay again it's the same point he did not put off getting back to following the word of God and then it says I remembered you see 
verse 61. The cords of the wicked have encircled me. I have not forgotten your law. When the cords of the wicked surrounded him, we don't know what the particular context of this was, but it comes up a few times in this psalm. In that situation, he did not forget the word of God. And then finally, he says, I shall rise to give thanks. So you see, all of these things are very practical. He made a promise to seek the Lord. He sought the Lord with all his heart. He made a commitment to obey. He considered his ways. He had to stop and think. He had to turn around. He had to repent. He had to walk in the obedience to the word of God. He did this without dragging his feet. And thus he remembered the word of God in times of trouble, in times of affliction. And because he loved the word of God, he gave thanks for the word of God. This is good practical step-by-step advice that sometimes we need to just dwell on I believe in our lives such was this man's love for the word of God and then in the end verse of this stanza which I absolutely love the earth is full of your loving kindness O Lord teach me your statutes he cries out emotion wells up within him and he cries out to the Lord teach me the word of God and I believe this is the heart's cry of a true believer now, yes, we're not supposed to go around necessarily trying to say, well, you know, this Christian, is he a believer or not? But there is a time when judgment and discernment has to come into play in these environments. One of the characteristics, by, by not the only one, I'm not saying that, but a true believer will have a heart's cry for understanding the word of God within them. It may look different to how you study the word of God. I'm not saying there's only one way necessarily. Some people are practical, some people are academic. There's many different shades that this can take, but it will be a heart that cries out for the word of God and a heart that obeys. That is the heart of a true believer. And these things require thought, they require purpose, they require diligence, and they require the spirit of God in our lives. Let's read the next section, 65 to 72. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, For I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than a thousand thousands of gold and silver pieces. So in this section, we see God's purposes in affliction, in trial, and we see the desire, the holy desire that often comes out of these very trying situations in our life. What he's saying here, you have dealt well with your servant, literally means that God has been good and he has done good to this person. And he can say that even in the midst of affliction and trial. O Lord, according to your word, this means he has done good according to the principles of his word. The word of God displays God's character. It gives his commands. It shows us how he will act in relation to his promises and what will also happen to us if we, if we break or if we go against the word of God. It's very honest about the effects of that in our life too. This is the effect of revealed truth upon the life. It is ultimately good. It was designed for good. It was produced to have good effects in our lives. Truth and the word of God do nothing except good things. And they do this for individuals, they do this for communities, and they actually do this for nations. Righteousness exalts a nation. And this is something to think about as we pray for our nation. You see, the word there, it says, uh, verse 66, teach me good discernment and knowledge. This is a fascinating word here when you look at the background. The word discernment actually has the same connotation of taste. 
if you understand that. So just as your taste helps you discover whether something is bitter or sweet, this is now applied to the mind in that sense, or the spirit, you could say, the spirit and the mind together. And it's how we determine the moral quality of things to decide between right and wrong, wise and foolish, good and evil. This is what the psalmist is crying out for, for the Lord to teach him, teach me good discernment and knowledge. And this, I believe, is exactly what the author to the book of Hebrews is making reference to in Hebrews 5, verses 13 to 14, where he makes this statement. For everyone who partakes only of milk, he's talking about the word of God, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He is an infant. Listen. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The more you're in the word of God, the more your spirit and the more you're going to be trained to discern between right and wrong, between good and evil. It's that tasting element. And thus, the negative is also true. If you are a Christian and you are not in the word of God, you will not be trained. This is what the author of Hebrews is writing here. He's coming to this group of people who have been Christians for a while, and he's finding that they're still having to, to drink milk. And he's saying you should be further along than this in your Christian life because they obviously haven't been in the word of God in this sense. And thus, when someone comes along with a new wind of doctrine, you have no way to discern whether it is true or false, right or wrong. Thus, when the culture tells us to do things that are evil and against God's law, people glorify these things. We have to be able to see these things and call them for what it is. The psalmist is going to talk about this in a little bit, actually. He says, before I was afflicted, in verse 67, I went astray. And this shows us the divine viewpoint, you could say, or purpose in trials that sometimes come into our life or trials that we wander into in those moments where we're not walking the right way. He says he was going astray. And then he entered into a period of trial. We can presume from this psalmist's writing here that in that trial, he then considered his ways... And he repented. And then it says, look, now I keep your word. He went into trial. The word of God convicted him. He considered his ways. He knows the importance of keeping the word of God. He can see the lies of the enemy. And he delights in the word of God because of it. This is just a great practical description of the actual process of sanctification and confession, repentance, 1 John 1, 9 in our lives. We see this going over and over, I don't know about you, but this is probably like a daily occurrence in some ways, when we know we, we've sinned in a, either in thought or deed, we come to the Lord, we confess it, we look at the word of God, we see his forgiveness, we see his grace there, and we give thanks for the word, we want to obey the word more. You see, he's in a place here where he looks at the affliction, whatever it was, we don't know, and he can even say that that is good. He's not saying necessarily what actually happened was good, these things can be, probably be very bad and quite evil, that we go through sometimes, but he's looking back and it's in the sense that that event brought him to a place of deeper learning and understanding of the word of God. And this is often the situation. Things can be bad, but when we're following the Lord, following his word, we have a deeper and sometimes often more profound understanding of the actual truths within God's word and a stronger desire to follow and to learn. And then he ends with this summation of wisdom. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Again, just a wonderful statement to end this little standard. You see, the word of God is our most valuable treasure. I mean, you can say that, you know, except obviously for Jesus Christ, but again, why, why separate the two? The word is our most valuable treasure. And this is one of those things where, again, we do well to meditate on this verse, to really 
think about what this means. When it relates it to gold and silver, that was the most valuable thing. That's what people devote their lives to gaining. That's what kings kill people for. In the ancient world, gold and silver was where it was at. It was everything. And he's saying the word of God should be like that for you. This is the love, again, that this man has for the word of God, this psalmist. Let's look at the next stanza. This is verse 73 down to verse 80. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad, because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. O may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me. Even those who know your testimonies, may my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. And we see here he starts with an affirmation that God is his creator. And this is important. Sometimes you have to go back to basic principles. What he's basically saying here is because God is the creator of mankind, God is the revealer of his word, God is the one we need to listen to. God's word is final authority on everything. Man's word can be true in some instances, but God's word is true in every instances, and where we don't understand, we submit to the authority of the word of God in our lives. It says, may those who see me be glad. And this is a concept you may have experienced. When you see another believer, one who is longing for the word, who's waiting on the word, one who is being blessed in ministry, doing wonderful things, one who is from a different church, different country, different nation, and you meet them, and you instantly have that shared bond over the word of God, over Jesus Christ, and it should fill us with gladness. And how tragic it is that in so many instances, this is not the case. If you speak to anyone who's been in church for any period of time, quite often they could just list that you could start talking about people who have wronged you, people who have hurt you, and these things happen. I know they do happen. Throw any group of people together, you're going to get these situations. But this is where it really gets difficult. These are the situations that where God says, we're not to hold on to these things. We're to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We're to be tender-hearted to one another. We're to speak only words that are fit for edification, for grace and salt, all these sorts of things. This is the hard stuff of Christianity. This is where it really gets... We may look and think, not murdering, well, that's pretty easy. But these are the things. But God's word places equal important on these things for the unity of the body. They're, and it can be a process to go through them. Like this psalmist, he's in trials and affliction sometimes. But it causes him to turn his feet turn back to the word of God, give thanks for the word of God, and ultimately, at the end of the line, we have to look, what are we following? We're following the word of God, yes, but we know from the New Testament that the word of God incarnate is the living word. He's the one whose feet we are actually following towards which the word of God is pointing. And where is he leading us? He's leading us to his kingdom. That is our destination. Don't try and separate the two. Always have that in mind when you're following that higher fulfillment, that purpose, that kingdom that we're working for as we're laboring here on this earth, as we're going through these things as ambassadors for that kingdom, we, of course, must follow the king. Verse 77 to 76, fascinating verses. May your loving kindness comfort me according to your word. May your compassion come to me so that I may live. Your word is my delight. Notice the concepts of comfort and compassion. Now, we could all use comfort and compassion at many times in this life, right? Where do they come from? They are both intimately linked to the word of God. 
And it goes back to what I was saying right at the beginning. How can we live as Christians without the word of God? Now, you may have heard or had conversations with people where you, you, they're on the verge of leaving the church or they've had bad experiences or they're thinking of leaving Christianity altogether. And you, you sit with them and you listen to these people and it, it always breaks my heart when I have these conversations or hear about them. And one of the things I've noticed is that in these conversations, what is being described as reasons why they no longer feel they could be part of the church or why they say statements like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, and all these different things that go on. And I'm not denying that there's usually real pain that give birth to these sorts of statements. But often, if it's an emotion that's leading you, this is the time when truth can be skewered and we, we make a wrong error of judgment. This is what it, it goes back to those people. Remember what he said, by using the word of God, you will be trained to discern right and wrong. It's a process here. And often, when I speak with people like this, what they describe is not biblical Christianity. They're not giving real reasons. They're not actually objecting to biblical Christianity. They are maybe usually objecting to personal encounters that have gone bad. And we all know they are the worst sort of encounters, aren't they? Like, let's be honest, they are the things that stick with us and hurt us the most quite often. But the Lord still heals us. But if you push below the surface you can usually see that the word of God has not been followed. Following the word, turning your feet. And this happens over and over. When we expose ourselves to the word of God, although it may have a sting in its tail in the sense that it convicts us of various things, it doesn't just leave us with that sting. It always takes us further than that because the king's always leading us, not just to convict us and show us how bad we are, but to do that and then continue us taking us to his kingdom. You see... Don't ever separate them. Always have the kingdom purpose in mind there. That is where the word of God is following, and that is how we get through those times. This is what I mean. How can we live without the word of God? It's exposure to the word of God, and this is what the psalmist is saying in this verse. Loving kindness and compassion will also come to you through the word of God. That, and we need that. That's basically the experiences that heal those wounds that we have from these things that go on in our lives, that go on in churches, that go on all over the place. You see... We don't let our view of Christianity be shaped by these experiences or influences or ideologies or people, whatever they may be. We must only let our view of Christianity be shaped by its founder and by his word, the revealed truth of God. And we, he walks, that, walks us through that. The psalmist calls what they, these what they are, the lies of the arrogant. I love that phrase there. And the arrogant is really referring to high-minded people who put their own opinion above the word of God. The psalmist said, they tried to subvert me with a lie. And this is good in the sense that it didn't work. The world was trying to subvert them with a lie. But look what he says. He says, but I shall meditate on your word. And when you do that, you'll be able to see these lies for what they are. They are lies that seek to bring ruin into us. Let's read uh, Kaf. This will be our last stanza that we'll look at. Uh, verse 81 down to the end of that section. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word, while I say, when will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me, 
according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Now we get a, a real sense of the desperation of the psalmist here. He describes his soul as languishing, fainting. The word literally means coming to an end of himself. We've looked at this at other psalms here. He's coming to an end to himself. The idea is that he had such an intense desire for the Lord that his strength was literally spent in in having that desire. His strength gave way. It was so powerful. He is waiting, or your translation might read, hoping for the word. Now let's ask ourselves again one of these difficult questions. When we find ourselves in a trial in a frustrating situation, in a disagreement with a brother or a sister, or just anyone, in fact, where do we turn for advice? Often, if we're quite hot-headed, you immediately fall on your flesh, you fall on a defensive argument, you fall on all these different things. Sometimes, you know, those who are slow to speak are the ones that can have that time to think, where do we turn? We turn to the word of God. It says that the psalmist's eyes had failed him. Some people put this, the word has the connotation of being strained because he was searching for the word so diligently. And I actually, I love, I tend to like that picture. If we, if we believe that this Bible is actually divine revelation, it is from the future king who one day will rule from this earth, the one who created everything in all its glory and majesty, who has the power to do that. If we truly believe that this is divine revelation, his communication of revealed truth, that he wants us to know, this is the one who loved us so much that he died for us and he told us this story, revealed it to us, left it for us. Why wouldn't we search it out with such a desire that our eyes are left straining because we're longing for the word of God so much? That's, I believe, something we should all aspire to. We should all encourage one another in. We will pray for one another in. And this is what the psalmist has here. This is what he's getting at. I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons the psalmist loved the word of God so much is because he studied it so much. He was in the word of God so much. You could say it's like a mine full of treasure, but a lot of it's under the surface. Now, you can pick up the bits that you can see immediately, but if you really want to keep going and get more and more, you labor in it. You work, you go down deeper, and you get more and more treasure. It yields its treasure in proportion to how much we search him for him in it. You search the scriptures. Now, the Jews were doing it in that day. They were searching for the wrong reasons and the wrong motives, but he says, you know, they reveal me is what he's getting at. That's our main motivation for searching the scriptures. Jesus Christ is revealed through them. Now, verse 85, the arrogant have dug pits for me, Again, lovely description that he says here. The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accordance with your law. He's talking about people who do not follow the word of God. For me, this is just a wonderful commentary on society in general. Things haven't changed from the days of the psalmist. Living as a Christian in this world is becoming increasingly harder, even in places where we've generally had a fairly easy run of it for the last few hundred years. The world, if we could say, is digging more and more pits for us to fall into. It's impossible these days to watch anything on TV, listen to anything, without at some point being fed a worldview that is not according to God's word. There are people, organizations, institutions that are trying to get us, pressurized Christians, to go along with worldviews that we disagree with. We've seen many instances where Christians are starting to be dragged before courts for standing for biblical principles, just like it was when Jesus promised the early disciples they would be brought before kings 
because of the word of God. You see, nothing's really changed in that respect. But it says, they've dug pits for me. And the psalmist here gives us what we have to do. He says, all your commandments are faithful. You see, although the world tries to pressurize us, the pits it digs, the pressure it puts on us, if we have the word of God, we know that his commandments are faithful and true. And thus, we are not to follow the stream of culture in that respect, because we know that that is a lie. And it says it quite clearly here. They have persecuted me with a lie. You know, they've brought me in front of the courts because I won't do this or that. And they're the ones who are actually wrong, even though they're saying that I'm wrong. We're going to have to take that label. But as long as we have the word of God, we stand firm on the word of God in that. Now, I know that's easier said than done. But again, this is the part where you need the body of Christ behind you. It says, they almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. You see, the pressure from the world was so intense on the, on the psalmist. Again, we don't know his situation, but whatever it was, it was close to causing him to maybe forsake his faith or, or to have to give his life in one of these ways. But it always, again, breaks my heart to see and hear from believers who have been so worn down by the world that they're at the point, the verge, or often going over the point of forsaking truth for the lies of the world. Because when lies are just repeated and repeated and repeated, when you're told that you're wrong, you're wrong, you're on the wrong side of history, and all these, these ridiculous slogans that get branded about that we all absorb so readily from everything that we put into our bodies, if we're not filtering them through the word of God, if we're not using our, training our senses to have good reason to be able to discern what is good and wise and foolish and right and evil and wrong, we're not going to know how to make these decisions. But the psalmist here gives us the practical key. He says, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Reminds me very much of Joshua's famous words, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the same thing. When the cultural pressures are strong, as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. It's another one of these famous, but, but as for me statements, I will not do it. Nothing would uh, make this man forsake the word of God. Now, there are many things in this world that do seek to draw us away from the word. We know this. Some of them are fairly innocuous. Some of them are big. It could be as little a thing as life, work, business, could be our emotions, could be past hurts, could be direct evil, could be bitterness, could be cold hearts, could be mocking from outsiders, could be intellectual arrogance on our own parts, could be pride, could be sin, could be compromise. We could all give a list many, many times over for things we've probably experienced in our own lives. But because this man was in the word of God, because he was longing for the word of God, he was waiting for the word of God, he was searching the word of God, because his heart truly loved the word of God, Thus, it said he would not forsake it when these pressures came. Instead, and this is the final verse, and look at this. What, again, all of these stanzas just end on such a beautiful verse. Instead of giving in, falling in the pits, and all these things that the, he lists here, he says, revive me. Instead of following and giving in, he asks for revival because he knows in his own strength he can't do it, so he needs that touch of the Lord. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth, the final verse there. Now notice how he was revived. This is key. Because it's not, you might expect in a psalm like this, him to say, I was revived, and it was because of my love for the word of God, because I've been talking about that so much. But I think the, the, this is crucial here. He was revived according to the loving kindness of God. This is that word chesed in Hebrew. This is the, it means covenant, loyal, faithfulness. His loyal, covenantal love. It was not his love for the word 
which was the saviour in and of itself, he knew it was the loving kindness of the Lord that revived him. And when touched, and when you see and experience the Lord in that way, you are inspired and motivated to keep his word. That's what he says here. Look, revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. In order that he may keep the testimony of your mouth. And here, I believe in this verse, is the purpose and the fruit of a true revival. We've had many revivals throughout the history of the Christian church and we've had many false revivals, I believe, throughout the history of the Christian church. But this is how you know. This, if you want a litmus test, this is it. It's not some hyper-spiritual experience, some manifestation, some blessing that you have to chase across different countries, almost like getting on planes to the next place where it's happening. I, I have huge trouble with all of those sorts of things. It's not thrills, it's not excitement. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure it is thrilling and excitement when you're in the midst of revival. Absolutely, it will be. But the litmus test for the fruit is what the psalmist says here. When you see revival, whether it's personal, national, or local body of Christ, you will see people desiring to keep the testimony of the word of God. It will result in spirit-filled obedience to the word of God, and it will, part of that will be in gospel proclamation, because that is part of obedience to the word of God. It is for producing obedience to the word as a response to God's loving kindness. And may we all desire that revival in our lives as Christians. And may we live in obedience as Christians and tell others of what the king is doing for us. And there are some hard truths in the word of God. We're going to see more as we go through the rest of this psalm next week. But ultimately, the message I believe here is for us as believers, we love the word of God. It reveals to us the Son of God reveals to us how we should walk in this world. It is everything to us. Ultimately, I'm saying that, kind of coupling it with Jesus, because I, I very much keep the two together when I talk about that. But this is what Psalm 119 teaches us. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.